Chapter 3 of Conciliatory or Irenical Animadversions on the Controversies Agitated in Britain under the Unhappy Names of Antinomians and Neonomians by Hermann Witsius. Translated by Thomas Bell. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. When the translation of sin to Christ and his bearing it commenced and ended, and whether when carrying the sins of the elect he was separated from god abominable to him and abdicated by him let us now inquire in the third place whether the translation of sins to christ and his bearing them began at his crucifixion and ended in his resurrection from the dead to which question i answer thus the translation of our sins to christ may be considered two ways either as in the decree and then it imports nothing else but the certainty of that event which should take place at the appointed time or as in the execution which began when the son of god having assumed the nature of man and the form of a servant was in such a state that he could actually satisfy divine justice for the elect the very assumption of human nature was an acknowledging the debt of our sins which the son of god had taken upon him and the handwriting was sealed with the blood of his circumcision all that form of a servant and the likeness of sinful flesh which continuing from the beginning of christ's life even unto death is an evidence of sin translated to him for all that time which he passed in a mean and an abject state he was never seen without sin as paul speaks hebrews nine twenty eight and in that meanness and misery there was not only a confession of debt but also a part of satisfaction for as the death which god threatened to man who was soon to sin comprehends those miseries to which the sinner is obnoxious through the whole of life and which are some part at least of the curse lying upon him so it was just that christ in order to the payment of the debt which he had taken upon him should pass a life obnoxious to many miseries such as that of the sinner is now as god exerciseth much long-suffering towards sinners until the day of wrath and of just retribution come when all the weight of his curse shall lie upon the damned in like manner neither was christ in his servile state always so pressed with the weight of sins lying on him but that now and then he was refreshed with a remarkable sense of the divine favour till the hour and the power of darkness came when being called to judgment he underwent the most terrible things then chiefly was our iniquity exacted then most of all was christ afflicted then the satisfaction was perfect to the uttermost farthing to say it in a word as all miseries taken together are the debt of sin so also christ to whom all the debt of the elect was translated while he spent a life liable to miseries which were most grievous at death by all those miseries taken together and by a cursed death itself he satisfied divine justice so that all these taken in cumulo make up the payment which was due for our sins therefore they begin too late and lengthen the time too much in which our sins lay upon christ who make it to commence with the cross and to terminate in the resurrection for elsewhere i have largely proved that those pains which he suffered in his body and soul prior to his crucifixion belonged to the punishment of our sins and that in them there was a demonstration of divine wrath 
but that after death he remains still loaded and deformed with our sins does not agree with the celebrated saying it is finished nor with paul's doctrine who asserts that the handwriting which was against us was nailed to the cross and so taken away and that christ having spoiled hostile principalities and powers and made a show of them openly triumphed over them by his cross colossians two fourteen nor in fine with other arguments of learned men to be examined by and by for it cannot be conceived how christ was forsaken of god cast off and abominable to him when the father kindly embraced his spirit and received it into heaven and considered his body lying in the grave as the body of his holy one loving him and beloved by him hence his flesh did rest in hope psalm sixteen nine and ten for i see that it is also disputed in the fourth place whether christ during all that time in which he chiefly bore our sins was separated from god and god from him whether on account of the pollution of sins which were translated to him he was odious and abominable to god whether god at that time did abdicate him and again acknowledge him for a son when he raised him from the dead to speak candidly the matter appears to me in the following light viz that what is unusual and hard in these words which their author by a singular turn of mind pursues and in which he delights strikes such horror into the hearers that they are astonished at the unexpected speech that they cannot weigh the thing itself in an even balance but without being unhinged by passion i shall attempt it and as to the first since they agree in this that at no time the personal union was dissolved both confessing with the council of chalcedon that it was indissoluble and perpetual and meanwhile since it appears that the son was forsaken of the father then far from his salvation and from the words of his roaring psalm twenty two one namely as to the present influences of exhilarating and comforting grace yet so that god did not cease by his almighty power to support the suffering humanity otherwise unequal to bear the weight of the dreadful curse truly i do not see what ground of controversy can remain unless this perhaps whether during all the time of his extreme sufferings christ's soul was refreshed with no sense of comforting grace which indeed i dare not say he truly bore our sins when in the garden he began to be troubled and to be sore amazed and to be sorrowful even unto death and yet at that very time he had an angel sent from heaven to strengthen him while he exposed his body to the smiters and his cheeks to them that plucked off the hair while he hid not his face from shame and spitting he found that the lord was his helper therefore he set his face like a flint because he knew that he should not be ashamed he being near who would justify him isaiah fifty six seven and eight neither does it seem probable that even on the cross the mind of christ was always so intensely fixed on the divine wrath against our sins that faith did not now and then represent to him what an acceptable sacrifice he would offer to his father and what a glorious reward he would obtain to himself and to his elect after the greatest torments indeed but of a very short duration truly that thought could not but greatly comfort his soul so deeply plunged in sorrow and i judge that paul intended this when exhorting the hebrews to run with patience the race set before them and with that faith which believes that god is the rewarder of them who diligently seek him he sets the example of the lord before their eyes 
looking, he says, unto Jesus, the author and finisher of faith, who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, Hebrews 12.2, that is, by the view and the expectation of the joy promised to him, he was remarkably encouraged to endure the cross, yea, and in enduring it. And which is more, in that very moment wherein Jesus complained that he was forsaken, he recalled to memory that God was his strong God, his God in covenant, certain that by the strength of his God he should be supported, certain that all the promises of the covenant should be yea and amen to him and to his people. Let us now come to the other head of inquiry, whether it be proper to say that Christ, on account of the pollution of our sins, was also polluted and odious, and placed in such a state that God abhorred him. Where, again, it is without controversy that Christ, because of his most perfect holiness, was always most acceptable to God the Father, and most beloved by him. And it is so far from being true that by the voluntary susception of our sins, the love of God to him was anyhow diminished, that, on the contrary, he never pleased the Father more than when he showed himself obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. For this is that excellent, that incomparable, and almost incredible obedience which the Father recompensed with a suitable reward of ineffable glory. Nay, it is also confessed on both sides that Christ, not because of the susception of our sins, which was a holy action, and most acceptable to God, but because of the sins themselves which he took upon him, and because of the persons of sinners whom he sustained, was represented not only under the emblem of a lamb, inasmuch as it is a stupid kind of creature, and ready to wander, but also of a levitious, a wanton, and a rank-smelling goat, Leviticus 16.7, yea, likewise of a cursed serpent, John 3.14, and in that respect was execrable and accursed even to God. For this is what Paul expressly asserts, Galatians 3.13, on which place Calvin thus comments. He does not say that Christ was cursed, but a curse, which is more, for it signifies that the curse due to all terminated in him. If this seem hard to any, let him also be ashamed of the cross of Christ, in the confession of which we glory. Some of the Romish doctors have, with great acrimony of style, aggravated what was said by Calvin in the tenth section of his catechism concerning the satisfactory pains and punishment of Christ, viz. that he was in a state of damnation. But it is answered by our divines that Tertullian used the same phrase, Book 3, against Marcion. Chapter 11. The nativity will not be more shameful than death, nor infamy than the cross, nor damnation than the flesh. Cyprian, on the Passion of Christ, he was damned, that he might deliver the damned. And Gregory the Great, Morals, Book 3, Chapter 11, he who is equal to the Father in point of divinity, came on our account to scourging in respect of the flesh, which scourging he would not have received, had he not in redemption taken upon him the form of a damned man. Since, therefore, the Apostle expressed this truth in the most emphatic words, I know not why a desire should seize any of ours, either of substituting or of adding others to them, or of using them oftener, perhaps, than even Paul's. For what cogent reason is there why we should say that Christ was odious and abominable to the Father, when we may adhere to the dictates of the Holy Spirit, who pronounces that he was an execration of God? But I would wish also to know what there is in these words of human invention, except that they are of human invention, for the sake of which others are so much offended. 
If we love the thing itself, is there more of emphasis or of weight in the names filthy, odious, abominable than in the name cursed or execrable? Why do we strive about words which may be safely omitted if found to give offence, but being also innocently said ought not to be wrested to another sense? The conciliatory letter I lately mentioned seems to have found out a convenient method of agreement in the following words. Since there is an exchange of persons between Christ and believers, and since the guilt of our iniquities was laid upon him, the father was offended and angry with him. Not that he was ever moved with any passion against him, which is repugnant in general to the perfection of the divine nature under whatever consideration, neither that he was by any means offended at him, much less abhorred him, so far as he was considered in himself, for so he was entirely free from all sin, but as considered in relation to us, seeing he was our surety, carried our sins in his own body. Thus, if by an offended and an angry mind you understand a holy will to punish, Christ the Lord felt and bore the displeasure of God and the weight of his wrath in the punishment of our sins which were translated to him. For it pleased the Father to bruise him, having laid the iniquities of us all upon him. If these things are granted on both sides, as is just, what controversy can remain? There is more difficulty in the abdication of the Son of God, as they call it, continuing even to his resurrection from the dead. For nowhere in sacred scripture do I find this phrase or any other equivalent to it. Concerning it, certainly, it is not inquired whether the eternal Son of God ceased to be the Son of God while he carried our sins. Let him be anathema who teaches this. But neither is it inquired whether or not the Father then assumed the character of a judge by whom the mediator Christ sustaining the person of rebellious servants, should as such be most severely treated. For this also is an uncontested truth. Perhaps that may be inquired whether God, when he assumed the character of a judge towards Christ, so laid aside the character of a father, that he considered and punished him only as guilty, setting aside the consideration that the guilty person was his own most innocent son. In which controversy the negative part is, in my judgment, better than the affirmative. For as Christ, in the utmost extremity of anguish, acknowledged the judge to be his father, so also God the judge owned him to be his son, for these mutually follow one another. Now Christ, with an ingemination and a singular affection, cried, Abba, Father, and hanging on the cross he commended his spirit into the Father's hands. And it was of paternal affection, as I also lately hinted, that he sent an angel to comfort him, which certainly will not be the lot of reprobates that he gave him occasion to say, when he was most poor and needy, Indeed I am such, but the Lord thinketh upon me. Psalm 40, 18. And finally, that he received the departing soul into his own habitation. I see indeed it is alleged for this purpose that Paul refers the words of the second psalm, Thou art my son, this day I have begotten thee, to the resurrection of Christ, Acts 13.33, as if God in the resurrection of Christ had, as it were, again begotten his son, and as if his sonship, destroyed by death, had been renewed by the resurrection. But these words have a very different sense. By the resurrection it was indeed declared that Christ is the Son of God with power, not only because appearing alive again by his own power, he proved that he has life in himself, but also because the Father, by raising him, absolved him from the blasphemy wherewith he was charged, for claiming to himself the dignity of the Son of God. In fine, because 
then the form of a servant was laid aside whereby the glory as of the only begotten of the father had hitherto been much obscured and his equality to god had not been evident to all but if we properly attend paul has another point of view acts thirteen thirty three he does not prove the resurrection of christ from the second psalm but from isaiah fifty five three and psalm sixteen ten while verse thirty four thus begins but that he raised him from the dead etc he said on this wise etc accurately speaking paul's meaning is this that the promise made to the fathers god fulfilled to their children jesus being raised that is exhibited in the flesh for the same phrase has this signification elsewhere acts two thirty three twenty six seven thirty seven now who he is whom god promised to exhibit may be collected from psalm two where he promises to the church that he would give her a king who should be his son being begotten in a singular manner from eternity it appears therefore that the allegation does not at all belong to this controversy i am unwilling however according to my candour to conceal that there is another thing which may somehow and that only so be referred to this head the scripture speaking of christ's being taken up into the heavens frequently uses the word analepsios luke nine fifty one mark sixteen nineteen acts one two and twenty two one timothy three sixteen now analamsanin as budaeus observed is to resume and analamsanin don peda in demosthenes against nerea is opposed to do apocrypti as amongst the latins the recognizing of children is contrary to abdication he therefore thinks that analempsin signifies the acknowledging of christ formally abdicated as it were by the father beza rejects this as an empty trifle but kloppenburg commends it and long ago i professed that i most cordially embraced it in regard that it both agrees with the genius of the language and exhibits an useful doctrine the son was sent by the father into this lower world to accomplish the work of redemption in the form of a servant in a fashion so base and abject that he seemed rather a worm than a man much less the most glorious son of god except that now and then some rays of divinity shone forth but in his exaltation to celestial glory the father declared before all that he acknowledged him for his son and meant that he should be adorned with honour befitting so great a name but these things do not import such or so rigid an abdication as learned men urge which beginning with his crucifixion ceased precisely at his resurrection i know not whether that stubbornness of style wherein they delight in explaining the sufferings of christ arises from this that they think he was so substituted for sinners that he behoved to undergo precisely the same punishment which was otherwise due to our sins and which the damned shall suffer in their own persons which opinion owen defends at large in his prolegomena to the hebrews volume two page eighty etc i profess truly that i agree with those divines who believe that the father demanded from the son a sufficient ransom indeed and worthy of his injured majesty yet so that all clemency was not excluded nor was everything found in christ's sufferings which shall be found in the most righteous punishment of the reprobates for from his untainted holiness from the covenant between him and the father finally from the dignity of his divine person some things are to be observed in his sufferings which have no place in the eternal misery of the damned while impious men roaring and gnashing their teeth and raging with diabolical fury against divine justice are forced to undergo the punishment inflicted on them 
so much the more grievous for this reason that they wretchedly weary themselves in vain resistance because they are gnawed with the never-dying worm of conscience continually upbraiding them with their crimes christ from the purest love to the divine glory voluntarily underwent his afflictions though most grievous and with a calm submission to his father's will drank the overflowing cup which was mixed to him and well knowing that nothing befell him on account of his own sins he enjoyed the serenity of a pure conscience the rigour of a stubborn law and the peremptory sentence of an inexorable judge whereby they are condemned to unavoidable and eternal anguish being continually before the eyes of the wicked inconceivably increase the terror of their torments through horrible despair but the sharp-sighted and the steadfast faith of christ representing to him ever and anon the father's most certain promises concerning an inconceivable weight of glory immediately to follow the most terrible torments indeed but of short duration encouraged him to bear them with alacrity certain of victory while he was in the most vehement ardour of the combat neither by asserting these things which are most evidently true do we anyhow detract from the value of christ's sufferings which is to be estimated not from their degree only nor from their duration but also from the dignity of the person suffering since in such pains of our divine saviour there is a sufficient ransom and equivalent to the debts of the elect End of chapter three